more than 30 counts. We'll discuss this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined, as always, by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please... Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, MBD, we had the shocking news. Not that it was unexpected. It was still, I think, kind of a, a shock that when it actually happened that a Manhattan grand jury has handed down this indictment of Donald Trump on 30 charges. Apparently, it's kind of a Kinko's indictment. They're, they're charging him per page uh, every time they logged a, a legal expense, uh, reimbursing Michael Cohen for this payoff to Stormy Daniels. The reactions, of course, were instantaneous with Republicans mostly losing their minds, I think mostly understandably, and Democrats saying, hey, look, no one is above the law. MBD, what do you make of it? Well, Personally, my personal reactions, you know, this is this is the what you get with Trump. Um, you know, this only could have been Trump, right? There's no other <laughs> there are probably no other figures in the Republican firmament who uh, have made a legal arrangement like the one Trump made with Stormy Daniels. Um, and yet at the same time, like everyone else, almost every analyst who's been reading about this in the past two weeks, uh, the theory on how to squeeze a felony charge out of these um, uh, accusations is flimsy at best, untested, uh, and most of Trump's dire enemies think it's um, it was too weak to bring in the first place. Uh, and so it's going to bind again, as we saw in the raid a few months ago, uh, Republicans to defend Trump. And Trump is going to use it to kind of reinforce this populist connection, right? They're persecuting me mm-hmm. because they're trying to get you. And in fact, that does connect a little bit. It has credibility because the Republican Party at large is pursuing this idea that the government has been weaponized against conservatives. So Trump is going to try to to further cement this bond between himself and conservative voters. And this is not uh, a uni- unusual, unusual phenomenon when it comes to populist politicians, right? We've seen this around the, around the world. You can kid a, commit a really serious crime and go to jail. And if you have this populist sensibility, it's us against them. They're out to get us. It, it helps you. Yeah, I mean, in American history, Huey Long, you know, mm-hmm. uh, was a figure like this. Um, and it it was not wrong, however, for Huey Long to say that the people that were against Huey Long were in some ways against the interests of Huey Long's supporters and mm-hmm. voters. So it's not like – it's not totally baseless, but it is um, – it, 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 Populism presents a real dangerous uh, threat to orderly, uh, small-r Republican life and and civic virtue by the creating this kind of um, uh, airsats mystical bond between mm-hmm. uh, elected leader and the people. 
Um, so, I you know, I don't know how far it takes him, though. I mean, he there's also the possibility that it will dawn on Republican voters that this legal miasma around Trump is a problem for him in a general election. Um, yeah. And, and, and it hurts his electability. Yeah, that might, that might happen down the road. So, Charlie, let's go stick on the, the merits of the, the case a little bit longer. So you just look at the history of this thing. So you had the Southern District of New York, you know, highly respected federal prosecutors. They took a look and they're like, nah, this is basically a misdemeanor. The the bookkeeping is is a misdemeanor. We're not going to go after this. You had Bragg's predecessors, Cyrus Vance, looking at it like, ah, it's a misdemeanor, and and then maybe maybe you can kind of bootstrap it up to a, a felony by alleging a campaign finance violation. But no one's tried to do that before. There's a, a problem with with New York trying to prosecute what would be a, a federal offense, you know, a federal campaign violation. So we're not going to do that either. You have Bragg coming in. He drops it, um, doesn't take it back up, looks at this larger business case, which is is also complex and, and problematic as a criminal matter. So he drops that. And then there's this outrage. You know, oh, you're saying you're just going to let him off? You know, one of his uh, prosecutors goes out and writes a book, very critical of, of Bragg. And lo and behold, he comes back to the stormy Daniel's case. And uh, it's not just folks on the right who are saying this is really tenuous. You've had uh, folks on the center left saying, saying the same thing. And that's because it's really tenuous. As you know, I'm not comfortable with prosecutors finding other means by which to bring down people than those they can prove. I, for example, think the way that Al Capone was treated was alarming. Really, the federal and state authorities wanted Al Capone on murder charges, of which he was guilty. But it couldn't quite get him. And so it found other charges of which he was guilty but maybe, applied... maybe it's finally right the Al Capone piece we've talked about this for years right maybe, maybe it's finally right <laughs> well the issue was he received a sentence for his crimes that was commensurate more with what he had done and everyone knew he had done elsewhere than what he had done in that case and I think we're seeing a similar instinct here an instinct that I understand because, as you know, I think he should have been impeached for what he did on before and after January 6th. This, though, is not the same thing. This is not a useful vehicle. This is a tendentious vehicle. And you can tell, as you noted, that it's a tendentious vehicle. Because if you turn on NPR today, you will hear about the weakness of the case. If you read the New York Times, you will hear about the weakness of the case. If you read The Nation, you will hear about the weakness of the case. This is a weak case. And I think it is a profound mistake. This is an example, as we would say in English soccer, of playing the man and not the ball. And the problem with starting to do that in a game is that after a while, the other team cottons on to what you're doing and they start doing it too. 
because they also have shoulders and elbows and knees. If we were talking here about a slam dunk case, I would be the first person to say no one is above the law. But we're not. We're talking about a case that, as you said, was dropped by Bragg's predecessors, has been broadly conceived to be pretextual, and that is the product of Bragg having said, when he was seeking the office he now holds, that he was going to prosecute Donald Trump. Not bring down the mafia, but prosecute Donald Trump. Why? Well, we will work that out in due course. And I'm afraid that given the considerable number of laws that we now have at the state and federal level, there will always be something that someone you want to go after has done. It still requires some discretion, some prudence, some judgment. It will not be particularly difficult for a federal Department of Justice under a Republican president, or for, say, the state of Texas, to find something that Joe Biden has done, if he survives his presidency, to find something that Hillary Clinton has done, and to take that person to court. I am worried about this because I think that while I would love to see Trump out of our politics, while I would love to have seen him disqualified by Congress, this is going to become a game of tit for tat over time that really will weaken the republic. And I've said before that I find it a little bit irritating when I hear from left and from right, I've now heard this from Hillary Clinton advocates and from Donald Trump advocates, that any prosecution of a candidate or former candidate or vanquished candidate puts us in the position of a banana republic. Of course it doesn't. But a whole bunch of sequential ticky-tack prosecutions that are really standing in for something else? Yeah, that actually does start to get us a little bit closer to a banana republic. And I think that Alvin Bragg should know deep down that this was not worth it. Yeah, so MBD, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard to argue. I, I would be a, let's trust in the, the system guy, right? Rather than let's, let's do tit for tat, throw out neutrality and, and, and fairness and just prosecute our enemies. But it, this makes it harder to make that case, right? It makes it harder to argue, no, the system is not fundamentally corrupt. Because in, you look at New York, that, that case against the Trump organization wouldn't have been made if it was the Smith organization or uh, in, in the Jones organization. Right. Uh, Alan Weiselberg, Trump's accountant, wouldn't be sitting in Rikers right now if you're any, anyone else's accountant for those offenses. And they're clearly squeezing him to try to get him to change his story to help in, in this case, which wouldn't be prosecuted in the way it is now against anyone else. Right. And, and it's harder to argue for distrusting the system because there's p- political pressure now on the Republican side and from grassroots conservatives saying – who fundamentally believe Trump was in some way cheated out of his first term by a deep state and a Russia gate uh, investigation that was itself uh, misinformation uh, that um, conservative voices get quashed on the internet by a consortium of public and private interests working together to unfairly pressure social media companies. 
So there's all this building sense of, of resentment that the system is has been weaponized. And um, Trump, Trump is the point of the spear, right? So um, it's going to be just very tempting for conservative voters to say the only way to deal with this sufficiently is to to take Trump as that spear and jab mm-hmm. it into the belly of this beast mm-hmm. uh, and and kind of give him another democratic, an undeniable democratic mandate um, in order to tear away the legitimacy from how they've behaved. Um, it is massively tempting. Um, and, and the fact is, you know, there's enough journalism about the Hunter Biden stuff that, uh, you know, the next Republican administration is very likely to go after it um, and investigate it. So, we'll, we'll, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, uh, but I, I share your your fear, uh, Charlie and, and Rich, too, that there is a, a way of madness that the, this, mm-hmm. this goes down. It starts with these ticky-tack investigations and then it leads to trying to criminalize political differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlie, just the level of imponderables here when, when you think about it. So when is this trial going to happen, right? I, I mean, is it a month or two or is it early next year? I mean, could, could a trial be going on, you know, right before or during the Iowa caucuses? So I assume if he gets convicted, in, in New York, there'll be various uh, appeals, but when would they, uh, assuming they, they nail them uh, for this, I don't think they should, obviously, when do they jail them, right? And where do they jail them? Um, is he going to go to Rikers with the Secret Service uh, protection? <laughs> and, and what happens if, you know, so far he said, we're recording on Friday afternoon here, that, you know, he, he's agreed to, uh, the word is he's agreed to be arraigned in New York, but what if at some point he just says no? You know, th- this is illegitimate. This is a political uh, prosecution. Prosecution. I'm not cooperating. Come and get me, copper. You know, to the, the Secret Service in that instance. Help them. Uh, stay, stay. You know, out of the reach of the U.S. Marshals or the Secret Service. Turns them over to the U.S. Marshals. What does DeSantis do? On and on. We've just opened this door into a dark room, not knowing entirely what's in there. And this is why you don't do it unless. It's inevitable because you are now asking excellent questions that make me shudder to ponder. If Trump had actually shot someone on Fifth Avenue, we would as a country have to face those questions. Of course, the irony is, given Alvin Bragg's record, if Trump had shot someone on Fifth Avenue, he wouldn't have been charged. (laughs) But these... Matters are of great import. I had a debate, I suppose, with Kevin Williamson when he was at NR about this very topic. Kevin said, one of our great values in this country is that no one is above the law. And that's true. Another great value, though, of equal importance is that we do not go after our political opponents with the force of law. And there is a balancing act here in making sure that the public believes that we are not going after our opponents with the force of law. And I don't think that this case rises to the level 
precisely because of all of the questions that you just asked. Will he be running for president while making court appearances? Could he be jailed as the Republican nominee? Again, if we're talking here about a serious crime, a crime for which anyone else would obviously be prosecuted, I think we would just have to deal with that. I don't think that there is anything special about people who declare for public office. And in fact, if there were, then we would have introduced all manner of perverse incentives into the system. You couldn't jail somebody who had run or was running. But it matters that this case is weak, that this case is frivolous, that this case is pretextual. Do you really want to open that box for this? I think the answer is patently no. And again, I think Alvin Bragg has made a real mistake in deciding otherwise. So I I agree with that, Charlie. But to speak for the devil's advocate position here, or the progressive, (laughs) progressive position here, is they view Trump as the unprecedented threat. Right, you know, and they would go through their list of, this is a guy, we know we didn't get him on Russian collusion, but mm-hmm. he basically announced in public that he was willing to do such collusion with Russia, encouraging Vladimir Putin to hand him the emails or whatever. Um, he's done all sorts of uh, things that they find uh, extra legal or provocative that haven't been done by Republican presidents before. And so the the same political pressure on the on the conservative side of treating this as a um, a weaponization of government against the entire American right. There's there's all this political pressure which brought Bragg to power uh, in New York to treat Trump as this unique threat. And it is it is like we've introduced. It is like the election of Donald Trump in 2016 introduced this free radical mm-hmm. into a. Uh, unstable chemical system and Mm -hmm. the reactions and counter reactions keep piling up on each other dangerously. So, so Charlie, what do you make of the the legal argument to follow follow on from MBD? What what they'll also say is, look, Michael Cohen confessed. He pled guilty to a campaign finance violation. So all, all you folks on the right saying that this is kind of made up or tenuous, it's never happened before. It did happen before he, the the guy he, who worked with Trump on this went to jail uh, um, uh, over it, or at least said he was he was guilty of it. So why does the fixer have to pay the price when ultimately it was Trump directing him to do it? I think there was more than that to the Michael Cohen case, wasn't there? Yeah, I, I, you know the way Andy describes it is basically they got him on everything else. And this was an add-on that had no uh, additional penalty to Cohen, um, in fact, a benefit to him pleading guilty to this because it was offering himself, in effect, as a, as a witness against Trump and, and helping um, make the case against Trump. Well, I, I think you just answered the question. Right. There is a big difference between having one small part of a panoply of crimes that you're prepared to plead guilty to having committed and having one of those as a standalone, which is what we're dealing with here. This would not be prosecuted in most circumstances. If it is prosecuted, Trump is going to say that he's innocent, which matters not because he is, but because he will appeal it. And because there are all sorts of potential problems with this 
case. There's a statute of limitations problem. There is a First Amendment problem. There are questions around, I'm not entirely convinced by this myself, but the ability to prosecute presidents and former presidents. And the again, the Pandora's box you're opening would not, in most cases, be considered worth it. And if Michael Cohen had only done this, do we think that he would have gone to jail? Do we think they would have bothered? I think they wouldn't. So, so MBD, how do you read uh, an element here? Obviously, I mean, there's a huge political element, and there's going to be a short-term, at least short, medium-term surge for Donald Trump. And DeSantis is in a potentially awkward position uh, because he's, uh, well, he's, he's on the receiving end of that surge. He's going to be the one falling behind. But two, you know, the, the arrestee is, is in his, uh, uh, his, his state. And last week or two weeks ago, whenever Trump first said, oh, I'm going to be arrested, and DeSantis, when he was asked about this, is like, uh, this, I don't have anything. I'm not engaging in this speculation. Yeah. I'm not engaging in this nonsense. I don't know about uh, hush, hush payments. And then he came out with the statement last night, <clears throat> forcefully attacking um, Bragg, calling him uh, twice a Soros prosecutor. We'll get to that in a minute. But saying Florida will not assist in an arrest of, of um, Donald Trump. And you, you can parse that, and he's probably not in a position to assist because one way or the other, because Trump's just apparently going to go. But how did you read that statement? Uh, I read that statement. It's a statement that he probably hoped not to have to give since he avoided giving it, you know, two weeks ago. Because he's just hoping the prosecution wouldn't, wouldn't happen. And wouldn't, he wouldn't, wouldn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he dismissed it as rumors, like that he wasn't going to commit to this. Um, you know, he probably doesn't... He, for electoral reasons, I think DeSantis wants to try to keep distance between himself and Trump's legal troubles, and any hint of you know seditionism or or or, or whatnot. But he can't get too far away without seeming like the establishment mm-hmm. that's out to get him. Uh, and Trump has been putting that pressure on him too. So he he came out with a statement, um, which was fine. It was truthful about Alvin Bragg. Um, and in some ways, I mean, maybe in the future, DeSantis could point out, even with this tweet alone, he has done more to assist Donald Trump than Donald Trump did for any January sixer. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not, we're not at that level yet. Um, so, you know, I think it was just the move DeSantis had to make. Um, but we'll see how it plays out later. I mean, there, there's an unpredictable element to all of this because, you know, what does the image of... It, it, we don't know what images are going to be produced by this mm-hmm. uh, event. Like, is there going to be an image of Donald Trump in cuffs? Is there going to be a mugshot? Is there going to be... How does that actually psychologically change the way voters look at him? Mm-hmm. Does it does it really increase sympathy among conservatives as much as it increases hostility among independents? I don't, I don't know yet. Yeah. Um, I, I think we're going to see the mugshot. You're not supposed to release them in New York, but there's, given how many, I assume how many people will see routinely see a mugshot, the, the chances that someone's not going to take a snap on their phone and and send it out or leak it to someone or send it to a you know a nephew who, who leaks it, it just it, it seems uh, very unlikely to me. It'll be kept under wraps, but we'll we'll see. So Charlie, what do you think of the DeSantis statement and 
particularly the, the Soros element. This has been um, a, a, a sub-argument in this controversy. Gosh, you conservatives, you really are anti-Semitic because you keep on saying Alvin Bragg is a, a Soros prosecutor. I have diametrically opposed views to the two parts of your question. The statement from DeSantis I disliked. I think it is a gamble. I think DeSantis is assuming that Trump is going to give himself up and that the question of extradition will be purely theoretical. I think DeSantis has probably been goaded into saying he will stand in the way and perhaps convinced by Trump advocates who have told him that if he doesn't, he's finished. And he may get away with it, because I think Trump probably will give himself up. If he doesn't, well, DeSantis is in something of a pickle. DeSantis really does not have a choice as to whether he complies. Now, that's not necessarily an originalist understanding of the extradition clause, but the Supreme Court precedents that obtain are clear that it is automatic. Trump, if he were to test DeSantis here, could precipitate a constitutional crisis. If I were DeSantis, I would not have done that. So, Charlie, I would not do, have risked do, that. Do you, do you I, I, I don't, uh, and there's no reason you necessarily would either. Do, do you have any idea how an, a, a cross-state arrest happens? So, so, if Trump resists and, and New York wants to go get him, they, they have to request permission from Florida or the, need help from, from Florida authorities or Florida authorities have to deliver him up? Do you, do you know? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I do know that the Supreme Court case on this has instructed governors that they are to comply. And there may be a federal element too because it's an interstate question. Then the federal government, I believe, can get involved. You really do not want, or should not want, the governor of the state of Florida standing in the way of the federal government when it is executing a portion of the Constitution that has been interpreted by the Supreme Court. The Soros stuff is absolute nonsense, and anyone who says it should be ashamed of themselves. The idea, which has been circling around now for years, that to criticize George Soros is to be an anti-Semite is absolutely ridiculous. George Soros is openly and joyfully engaged in our politics. I don't like the guy. I don't like most of what he funds. But he is a free man in a free country, who is using his considerable resources to effect change. That is his right. It's also the right of everyone who dislikes him or disagrees with him to say so. Now, we're not talking here about some private citizen who has been picked out against his will by shady and bigoted figures and turned into the face of evil. We're talking about a guy who is absolutely open and transparent 
about his conduct. Soros goes to conferences and talks about politics and about his philanthropy, as he calls it. Last year, he wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal titled Why I Support Reform Prosecutors under his own byline. That piece contains lines such as, I quote, I have been involved in efforts to reform the criminal justice system for the more than 30 years I've been a philanthropist. Here's another one. This is why I have supported the election and more recently the re-election of prosecutors who support reform. I have done it transparently and I have no intention of stopping. Here's another one. The funds I provide enable sensible, reform-minded candidates to receive a hearing from the public. It is absolutely illiberal and preposterous to suggest that anyone who sticks up their hand, whether it's me or the governor of Florida, and says, I don't like you, I think your involvement is making America less safe, I think the prosecutors that you bankroll and encourage and sustain are soft on crime. It's an anti-Semite. You might as well suggest that everyone who disagrees with me, and there are many of them, is anti-immigrant. Of course they're not. You step out into the arena, you're going to be criticized. There are lots of Soros-backed prosecutors in America. What do you think he's spending his money on? What do you think he means? When he says, this is why I've supported the election and more recently the re-election of prosecutors who support reform, I have done it transparently and I have no intention of stopping. We can't have a system where he says that, he sends them the money, he runs the ads on TV, he goes to conferences and talks about how important this is, he writes about it in the Wall Street Journal, and then the guy who stands up and says, I don't like those Soros-backed prosecutors, is redolent of Hitler? Come on! This is a massive lie. It's been a massive lie for years, and it is really regrettable that it is now being advanced with a straight face by a figure such as Joe Scarborough, who said this morning, I believe, on Morning Joe, that it was anti-Semitic to talk about Soros and his candidates in that way, that we were now living in, and I quote, Germany 1933, while, by the way, he sat on a panel with Al Sharpton. Come on. <laughs> Classic. So, next question to you. First, MBD, I'm going to double barrel it. We'll go to you with the, the first part of it. <clears throat> Give a number, need a, a specific number, a real number. What will Donald Trump's high mark be in the polling prior to Republican voters actually uh, caucusing or voting? So, maybe this is a, a high mark that he s sustains. You know, it's a high mark right a week before Iowa, or maybe it's a high mark next couple months and he comes off it. But how high is he going to go up in the, the polling? We had a Fox poll when we're at, that had him above 50 just this week, uh, earlier this week. 60%. 60. Charlie Cook. I think that's probably right. I need a Michael Sy to precede that number. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say 65. I think it's, it's, uh, there's, there's going to be a surge. It's not going to be fun to expect. Experience and with that, let's go to the the second part of the double barrel MBD. Looking at 2024 politics from this juncture, you would say we're not necessarily screwed at all. We're somewhat screwed, or we're totally screwed. Uh, we're somewhat screwed. Uh, we're somewhat screwed in that when you poll the entirety of the country. 
you get a result that's very clear. We don't want Joe Biden to run for president again and be president again after 2024. And we don't want Donald Trump to be president in 2024. However, once you separate into the parties and look at the political realities, you're looking at it. The, the likely scenario today is a Joe Biden versus Donald Trump election. Uh, this is going to just increase national discontent, um, dysfunction in our politics, uh, and there's only a few ways to break it up. Um, and all of those are quite uncertain at this moment. So, Charlie, we have a judicious somewhat from MBD. Somewhat screwed. I think we're somewhat screwed, and I think it's so regrettable, given the broad base of talent that the Republican Party has on offer, and given the position that it was in in 2015 when Trump came down the escalator. We seem, I say we, not me, but conservatives seem to keep going back to this well, even when the well has shown itself to be poisoned. And I see no sign at the moment that they are stopping. Yeah, I'll say somewhat as well. Maybe, you know, in my darker moments between somewhat and totally. But um, I think in terms of defeating Trump for the nomination for a while here, you're going to have to believe in the evidence of things Unseen, not entirely unseen. You know, DeSantis is favorable. Unfavorables are, are very high uh, in the early states, and that ultimately uh, should should translate into really poll, real polling streak. And it has in, in some early state polling, but the national numbers are just just going to be atrocious for for at least for a good while here. With that, let me pause. Do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around. Our metered paywall, your way if you sign up and log in to see 90% fewer ads, especially uh, the ads that are most obnoxious and annoying will disappear like magic. Your way to dive deeper into our community. You can comment on articles and blog posts if you're a member of NR Plus and you get invited to exclusive calls and events. So it's a great deal all around. And then most importantly, it's a really crucial way to support our valuable journalism. So if you're not already, if you are already, thank you very much. But if you're not already, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus today, tomorrow, maybe over the weekend or, or Monday. I'm not picky about the day, but please, please, please sign up if you haven't already. So Charlie, we talked earlier in the week about the horrific shooting in Nashville. We've had continued a debate the rest of the the week here, and there's just been this extraordinary accident. We, t- um, we talked about it a little bit uh, earlier in the week on trans people as the de facto victims that they they need to be scared about what happened. This this sets sets trans people back because uh, some people on the right have have focused on the trans identity of the perpetrator, etc. What do you make of it? I don't think I've ever seen an incident such as this one in which the perpetrator has been treated as reflexively as if she were the victim. It seems to me that the press just writes the same thing, whatever happens. 
if a Christian had killed six transgender people, what would look different about the headlines and media segments that we've seen? I can't move for pieces about how this has sent a chill through the transgender community. I have seen precisely zero pieces about how this has and should have scared Christian children. Now, as you know, I'm not big on groups. I don't like groups. I don't like generalizations. I don't like focusing on people's immutable characteristics. I don't like slicing and dicing up the electorate. I love the idea that we're all Americans. And yes, we have differences. And yes, we form civil societies within our own. But ultimately, we're Americans before we're white or gay or Christian or whatever. But this was, it seems, an attack by one person on another for an offense, a perceived offense, a grievance. And even if it wasn't, in most circumstances in the press, it would have been treated as such if the details had been reversed. I can't believe how this is being covered. I just, I cannot believe how this is being covered. I'll say again, what would be different? What would be different? if the victim and the attacker had been the other way around? I, I can answer that. <laughs> Go on. Uh, all Christ, almost all major Christian leaders would disavow the Christianity of the killer. Millions of dollars would be exchanged between churches heading toward LGBT advocacy groups to foster dialogue and understanding. Uh, <laughs> like, that that would be the difference. There um Christians would collectively um take on the shame and guilt of the act uh and try to make some kind of reparation for it collectively um that's what would happen yeah you know i'll finish just by saying that i have read a few tweet storms i suppose in recent days from people who have noticed the same thing that I have and who are equally appalled by it. And they have come up with an explanation for this that I find rather compelling. And that is that the elite opinion makers of whom I am talking really do have an either antiquated or inverted sense of who is the darling here of the media and who is not. They seem to believe that this is 1950 and that there is no support whatsoever for so-called marginalized groups, mm -hmm. while Christianity and Christian positions are nearly universally enforced. And the yeah, truth let's is... Let's talk about, I think... Uh, uh, Corinne Jean-Pierre did this uh, from the the podium uh, recently. They always say, like, trans people are uniquely under attack. 
You know that th th this is this is the, the highest uh, moment of danger for the for trans people when it's the the, the moment of highest tolerance. And, and I'm, I'm not even talking about the shooting, right? I'm just talking in general. They they pretend there's this this massive wave of intolerance when uh, institution after norm after standard is being bent to accommodate a, a very tiny minority. Right, and insofar as there are offensive and defensive moves, our First Amendment jurisprudence, for example, involves Christians arguing that they deserve the protection of the First Amendment against the equality claims that are made by the LGBT community. I say this as someone who is pro-gay, who has been pro-gay marriage for a decade, who has gay friends, who has no moral objection whatsoever to homosexuality whose objections to the transgender movement is mostly limited to its claims on children, especially irreversible changes made to children. But I am sick, as a soft ally, if you will, I am sick of hearing about pride. It's all we talk about. The idea that the people on that flag, which seems to grow every day, have a new color or shape on it every week. The idea that the people on that flag are not supported enough in elite culture is preposterous. It is preposterous. I, I just, I've never seen victims disappear like this. And again, I don't want to draw broad conclusions about transgender people from this. You won't find me doing that. You won't find me doing it on this podcast or in print. You won't find me doing it ever with mass shootings. I defended Bernie Sanders from being tied to the lunatic who shot up the baseball field. I do not see the world in that way. But I would like to hear something about the people who were killed. Not in a saccharine way, not in a way that blames transgender people for the actions of one crazy person, but because they were the ones killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so MBD, it's, as, as Charlie was, uh, said a few moments ago, it's just perverse. If trans people had been shot, there would have been a wave of coverage. Trans people are afraid and should be afraid. You have a trans perpetrator and you have a wave of coverage Trans people are afraid and should be afraid. Which was nuts because, of course, like, I know people who send their children to small Christian schools and they had a shudder this week. Mm -hmm. They shuddered this week and they shuddered at the idea that there's going to be this oncoming Trans Day of Vengeance and that they're, you know, they think in the back of their mind, could there be a copycat? Could there be a copycat soon? Right. Does my school have enough security? And yet they turn to the public airwaves and they're almost being treated as if they were the attacker and um you know there is a i've said on this podcast before but it needs to be said again the mainstream media is convinced that there is a huge mass of prejudiced americans who are ready to do terrible violence to any and all minority groups at the moment the wrong words or sentiments are said or expressed or endorsed. That there's just basically 
millions of potential American terrorists out there, and they treat us this way. And, and, and that is why it is a certain fact, you know, Charlie and Rich and I, if, if we wanted to get, and in and, and, and one way this, this kind of reversal didn't surprise me, because I've seen it before, in one way, if we wanted to get every news anchor in America to praise Islam as a religion of peace tonight, the fastest way to do that would be to mm -hmm. commit a bombing in the name of Islam, right? I mean, so there is just this, this expectations management that's being done um, that treats all Americans as defective, uh, proto-violent threats. And it's in incredibly insulting. Um, and it's been very dangerous because, it, you know, if you read these statistics on transgender youth mental health where 55% you know, suffer from severe suicidal ideation, the, the kind of script and copycat uh, incentives that have been created by the media this week are terrifying. Charlie Cook X questions you, how disturbed are you by the coverage of the Nashville shooting from zero? Eh, not, not any big deal. We're kind of used to this sort of nonsense to 10. Extremely disturbed. I'm closer to a 10 than I usually am. This has bothered me. I, I feel in this circumstance as if the... Media is full of automatons who are, have lost the ability to look at stories or evaluate evidence outside of the narratives that they believe to be important. And you see this not just in the insistence that the real victims here are trans people and the erasure, to use a left-wing term, of the actual victims, but in the flattening of the entire debate over the trans issue, the, the flattening together of people who are actually bigoted and say bigoted things in the way we would traditionally understand them, and people who, for example don't think that we should cut the penises off 11-year-olds. All of it, all of it becomes anti-trans, anti-trans bigotry or anti-trans legislation, such that the discussions that normal people have, and I can assure you that normal people are having these conversations about surgeries that are performed on children, disappear completely. And the gap that is created between the press and everyone else grows enormously. The press's response to this, and then the response of people I know, most of whom are apolitical, and certainly not all of whom are conservatives, is absolutely gigantic. It is just astonishing to talk about current affairs with normal people, who have normal jobs and spend their days with their families and their hobbies, and then to turn on the news. And I don't think I've seen a more profound example of that gap mm -hmm. than I have over the last week. Anybody? Uh, 
eight, uh, eight or nine. I mean, I think it's pretty. I, I think for a lot of people, the coverage is is almost deranging mm-hmm. in, in, the, in its effect, uh, and it will make if if you were fearful about the lost social prestige of Christianity before, um, or maybe even paranoid about it, you've been given much more reason to be this week uh, when, you know, three nine-year-old children were erased in favor of their killer. Yeah, so it's it's been abysmal. I might tick just a little bit below MBD at a seven because I, I just think it coverage doesn't have a lot of impact for a lot of people. They're either not aware of it or just totally discount it because it's so uh, patently absurd. But it's been another low point uh, for the legacy media among many, many others. Let's hit a few other things before we go. I'll actually go first because MBD and I, and Troy was here yesterday, are here in D.C., actually in the same room. If you detect if something sounds weird, it's because we're not all remote, and if we seem kind of awkward, it's because we're not used to sitting so closely uh, together. But we've all been here for a National Review Institute Idea Summit that has been really uh, terrific, a, a wonderful uh, crowd, and a lot of great uh, programming from the stage. But uh, what else have you been up to, MBD, if anything? Um, just enjoying the spring weather uh, and you know, for the first time, contemplating getting out in the yard again and cleaning up the beds and, and getting things going for spring. Uh, the uh, There's some work being done on my road that's torn up my front yard a bit, uh, which actually is providential because I'll lay down fresh grass uh, over this weekend. So Awesome. And a Mets, a Mets victory, right? A Mets victory, but already Justin Verlander on the injured reserve. Uh, uh and, and one more note, I mean, uh, Jacob deGrom got shelled on opening day, which at least made me as much feel a little bit better. <laughs> a little schadenfreude there. Charlie Cook, what are you up to? Wow, I've been drinking with you guys. That was my favorite part of the NRI Ideas Summit. I had a good time on stage with Ajit Pai and Jessica Malugin and really enjoyed watching, especially that first panel, Alan Guelzo. Yeah, he's Is that how awesome. you say it? And yeah. uh, Joyce Lee Malcolm, who... I'm sure it doesn't know this, but it had an enormous effect on me since I read her book. In fact, yeah. she was really one of the people who changed my mind on the Second Amendment. That, that, was a, that was a momentous thing then. That was a momentous contribution by her. Yeah, so I was fascinated to listen to her. But I listened. Did you, did you get a chance to tell her that? I didn't. I tried to find her, but my panel was right after yeah. hers, and I had to leave during hers so that I could get ready. Yeah. And then by the time that I came out, I couldn't find her. Yeah, she was sitting in the in the audience in the front. Oh, okay. You wouldn't have known that. Okay. But I don't get to see you guys too often. We all live in different places. And it was great to sit down and drink wine and break bread. All right. Well, with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD! What's your pick? Uh, my pick is a Jim Garrity piece from earlier this week. It's kind of one of these explainers that he's so good at doing which was Nashville Shooter's gun purchases could have been blocked and weren't. Uh, It's just a great little dive into the existing gun laws in Tennessee uh, and what could have been done to potentially prevent this tragedy, but which I think socially a lot of people aren't ready to do, which is to treat someone who you suspect is mentally ill and capable of violence as someone who might capably do something. 
Um, it's a good, informative piece and uh, reminds us to get familiar with our laws in our states. Charlie, what's your pick? My pick is a post by Noah Rothman called, But Why? And this is the question. I like these sorts of questions, as you may have noticed. Often they occur to me as well. People will say something as if it is a law of the universe. And I think, okay, but why? And Noah has written literally in this case, okay, but why? After the paragraph, citing their survey of Republican lawmakers and strategists and polling showing overwhelming hostility toward the prospect of a Trump indictment among Republican voters, the Washington Post affirmed that this development has, quote, set up Trump for short-term gains in his quest for the nomination. And Noah says, okay, but why? We just treat this now as if this is obvious. Well, I hope Trump doesn't get indicted for a crime (laughs) or it'll help him. Now, look, I'm not going back on anything I said. I think this is nonsense. And I do think that there is a broader question in play. The reason I think, okay, but why is such a good question here is that Trump did the thing he's been accused of. The problem is that he shouldn't have been indicted for it because it's a rinky-dink crime that no one else would have been charged for. But he did pay hush money to a porn star right? while his wife was at home with their baby. Okay, but why is a question that pretty much every single Republican voter would have understood in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Go back and listen to how Republicans talked, quite rightly, about what Bill Clinton did with Monica Lewinsky while he was married, while his daughter lived in the White House. Noah is right to say, okay, but why? This should kill Trump, not because Alvin Bragg is correct, not because the left is virtuous or uses the law properly, but because it highlights a moral failing that is, in my view, unforgivable in the remit of a candidate who doesn't need to be our nominee again. So my pick is the Bjorn Lomberg cover story and the new issue of NR. Bjorn was here at the conference giving a TED Talk style uh, talk, and his cover story just goes over. It's, it's really important to to read this. If you just follow the climate change coverage in the, the media, you just think, oh, it's just totally established, having more tornadoes and more wildfires and everything. And he goes through the evidence showing how that's not true or at least exaggerated and how far away a, a true green energy uh, future is and the the heavy cost we would would pay uh, by rushing such a, a transition. He is one of the most knowledgeable and thoughtful people in this area and shows it once again in his cover story in the new issue. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, MBD. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.